Hello, my name's Anthony, and this is my podcast, Theologizing Life, where we talk about how what we think about God shapes the lives we live. Hello, and welcome to episode six of Theologizing Life. In this episode, I sat down with Rachel Stevens, uh, who happens to be a friend of mine and my wife's, uh, who we knew from college, and she's actually partially responsible for uh, my wife and I meeting and um, dating and, and, and getting married. Uh, she is also uh, a professor, an assistant professor at Regent University, and she has her doctor of psychology. And so in this episode, I talked with Rachel about um, taking care of our own mental health. Uh, we talked about healing from emotional trauma, and we talked about why Christians don't need to be afraid to go to counseling. I hope you enjoy this episode and the conversation that Rachel and I uh, had. I also want to encourage you, if uh, you find um, this episode helpful or insightful, um, like, share, uh, rate it on uh, iTunes or on Apple Podcasts. All of these things can help uh, expand the audience. Thank you for listening. Hello. Uh, so excited if you're listening, uh, joining us for this episode. I have a friend that I met freshman year of college. Uh, Rachel Stevens is here with me. Rachel, for the sake of our listeners, uh, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? Um, and how did you find yourself doing what you're doing? You can also include personal things about your family. Uh <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so I'm a licensed psychologist in Virginia. Um, I work now for a clinical psychology program. I'm assistant professor uh, for that program and um, kind of get to do what I think is a lot of fun stuff of uh, teaching um, people, you know, kind of basic clinical skills, group therapy, uh, kind of have a specialty in treating trauma. And so I do a lot of work in mentoring students in that area. Um and then we also have a clinic on campus that I help run where um, most of, for most of our students, it's the first time they're seeing clients. They're um, working mm -hmm. in the clinical field for the first time. And so I kind of supervise that process and help them kind of get acquainted with um, doing clinical work. So and then I have a small private practice on the side where I see a few clients. Um, as far as how I got into doing this, um, I initially thought I wanted to teach high school choir when I <laughs> first met you, Anthony. <laughs> and then I realized in taking music classes that that was just sapping the joy out of it for me. And um, I had one professor who really emphasized um, how much everyone you know in a classroom is coming from very different um, home lives and family backgrounds and what it's like to attend to all of those needs and the reality is that some are you know going without food or their parents just split up the night before or, you know whatever it might be and I just realized I was so much more passionate about attending to those needs than mm. teaching music um, so music's still something I love, but uh, this has been definitely um, morphed into a vocation for me and a calling. Um, yeah, so. That's really cool. I actually didn't realize, uh, I'd forgotten that part about the 
the music. What, yeah. At what point in undergrad did you make the change? Did you make it freshman year or? It was middle of my sophomore year, um, which was, I, you know, it was good because I had only started getting out of all the like gen ed courses. Like it didn't derail things too much, <laughs> but um you know, it was it was interesting because my parents were very skeptical at first. Um, they actually kind of came from a uh, background in Christianity that was very kind of skeptical about the field of mental health. And, you know, I think they had some serious concerns at first about what I was getting into. <laughs> um, so, oh. this is, you know, and they've obviously come around to that and we are very supportive now. But uh, it was a bit of a coming to terms process. So, yeah. Well, we might, that might cop, come up a little bit again later, but <laughs> yeah. Um, so how long have you been, you're married and you have a, a little girl. How, how long have you been married and how old is yeah. she? Yeah. Um, well, I've been married um, since 2011. So next year will be our 10 year. Um, yeah. And Blake also went to college with us all. And um, so we've, we've known each other since those early days. And then we have a two-year-old daughter. Um, and so she is um, vivacious and extroverted like my husband and has <laughs> never met a stranger and just like <laughs> wants to do all the things. So, um, but yeah, she's a lot of fun. So Man, that's awesome. I'm a big fan of marriage and parenting. Oh, um, absolutely. Well, I say I'm a big, say I'm a big fan of parenting. Uh, sometimes it's a struggle sometimes, but it's a learning process. <laughs> I've often said to my husband, I'm like, how can this be so excruciating and beautiful at the same time? Yeah. Like, <laughs> that is, that is, I might borrow that. That's yeah. <laughs> a very good description. So, um, so you teach and you manage a clinic on campus, uh, on the campus where you teach that, um, helps students get into sort of clinicals mm -hmm. and then you have a private practice and as we just talked about, you're a wife and a mom. Uh, what what does that look like? Uh, sort of balancing those different roles, and uh, how do you go about pursuing work life balance? Is is kind of what they say, or or how would you define it? Maybe work life balance isn't a good description, but how do you balance all those roles? Yeah. Oh gosh. I um I tell especially I tell tell a lot of my um female students who are, you know, kind of trying to make the decision about, should I have a child while I'm in grad school? And, um, like, I do think I, I, for me, at least, I feel like I've had to be honest with myself about the limitations, like that balance is good until it doesn't work anymore. And there's, and you have to just admit the costs. Um, mm. so I think for me, I'm trying to be honest about that, that, um, I cannot, see myself as limitless and just continue taking on things and think that it will somehow just balance out and um, that balance can be achieved. You know, there's, there comes a point where I'm simply overcommitted and it, and it will cost, um, it will yeah. cost my parenting ability. It will cost my ability to succeed or be good at what I do in my job. Um, so that's always hard for me, you know, to say no. And, um, but I think that that is the first skill I try to really, um, evaluate. Like, is this really something that God is calling me to that I feel is, um, the right opportunity at the right time? Um, but then as far as, um, parenting and then like my work or my career, um, I think it, it, I try to hold a, a, 
just very firm belief that like, if God has called me to these two things, that they, it doesn't mean it won't be difficult, but that they are both, they can coexist somehow, yeah. even when it is hard. Yeah. Um, and again, not that there aren't real costs to that, but um, I try to see each of them as outpourings of what God has asked me to do with the time he's given me um, and not that they are warring against each other. Um, You know, my husband and I talk a lot about portraying work in a good light to our daughter, like work is good, that it's not something you have Mm -hmm. to dread going to every day and that it's just to make money, Mm -hmm. but like, why do we work? And that it's, it's a good thing that God's given us. And then also like, why do I cut work off and spend time with my family when, when that's Mm -hmm. needed too? And why does that only, you know, go so far and that there's a commitment there. So, um, I think, and this is just maybe my personality, but trying to live in the both and of that, that they, they yeah. not to view them as competing forces, but both um, parallel and intertwining things that God has called me to. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, at th- I think, but um, what inspired you to pursue the mental health field? You mentioned uh, that teacher that talked mm-hmm. about students that you might encounter. Uh, but how did that turn into pursuing this? What really inspired this being where you landed? Um, I think they kind of got the ball rolling in that direction. Um, and at, at the time, I I mean, a little bit more backstory, like neither of my parents had graduated from college. So I was the first to go to college and definitely the first to pursue graduate education in my family. So I didn't, don't think I really even had a great understanding of what I was doing. Right. I mean, right. I was very vague um, and God <laughs> slowly in his mercy got me where I needed to be in that. But um, some of the moments that really like helped me fall in love with this field were um, experiencing my own therapy and how transformative that was or like how um, just what it felt like to have someone see the good and bad parts of me, the the things I struggled with mm-hmm. and the things I was good at and still like be there. And to me, that just mirrored so much of um, what faith was and what Jesus is to me. And um, that was just very powerful to experience it personally. And I wanted to offer that to other people. And then right. um, I think also just some professors along the way who were just so passionate about what they did and seeing them work and work with clients. I was like, this is, this is, feels like magic in some moments, you know, just like the reality of like what relationship can do for people when it's yep. deep and meaningful and genuine. So, yeah, that's, that's good. So I'm going to ask kind of two questions at the same time. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the same question on the different side of the coin. How does your faith then influence your approach to mental health? And then how has your understanding and knowledge of the human psyche and and sort of how we're wired, how does that influence your approach to faith? Yeah. Um, so I think as far as, you know, faith influencing my approach to mental health is probably where I started from. And so maybe answer that one first, but, um, my my private practice is um, has the name the name Aletheia in the title, and that word's meant a lot to me over the years. And you probably um, have some associations with that from college, mm-hmm. even Anthony. Yeah. But um, 
aletheia is greek for truth and mm-hmm. i to me one of the things that it has that faith has brought into my work so much is the power of truth to heal us and to um give us a restoration and a um, depth of life and then also that um relationships bring wholeness ultimately our relationship yeah. with the lord but um i i so strongly believe that he has given us relationships with other people as a parallel of that and that when we let someone else into our lives to have that kind of like deep um knowing relationship and to speak truth to us in that relationship that's when people's lives change and so yeah. i i think that the theology behind that is so compelling to me. Um, and I, I love being able to have that. Even if I don't, I don't explicitly talk about that with clients often, but I having that in my mind as the the motivation for what I do and the rationale for it is, it's not just a textbook theory. It's, I believe the theology about why we're here. <laughs> so. Right. Yeah, that's good. I think of James and I don't remember chapter verse, but it says to, tells us to confess our sins to one another, which in the church, especially the Protestant church, is like horrifying. Like I'm not <laughs> confessing. But it says something afterwards about there being, you know, we'll be healed. Mm. And I've found that part of the healing is when we embody grace and we embody speaking truth into someone's yes. life. Yes. And and God, he just seems to work through human agency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, that's a great illustration. So... um. So I'm going to get into a potentially hairier kind of conversation. This is a longer question, but it'll sort of shape uh, conversations I'm sure you've had, maybe even with your parents. But within some Christian circles, I've come across people who believe psychotherapy and Christian faith are sort of diametrically opposed. Uh, And I think the premise is that psychology is fundamentally rooted in humanistic presuppositions that believe, you know, humanity is basically good and most of our vices are a result of past wounds, environmental factors, and physiological illnesses. And so it seems to sort of absolve them of personal responsibility. Um, Could you speak to some of the accusation or some of the concern? Uh, Is the Christian faith and psychology mutually exclusive? What are your thoughts? So I will be the first to admit that the field of psychology is incredibly secular. Um, When they do surveys of um, the religious orientation of psychologists, it's something like 98% identify as agnostic or atheist. We are not a religious bunch, (laughs) Um, (laughs) to put it lightly. And so... I mean, I think a lot of the theories and um, ways of viewing human nature are are certainly influenced by that. That they they do um, they're not theistic in how they approach life. They don't, um, you know, God is perhaps seen as a a crutch or a um, mm-hmm. you know figment of people's imaginations to get through life, um, but. And again, I'm so much a both and person, which is why I love therapy. So th- there are definitely some valid cri- criticisms of the field of psychology. It is not gospel. Um, but I think I would say that about really any human theory or approach or idea. Yeah. Like it's it, it's not online with the gospel. It can't have the, the richness of what 
um, of 100% um, time and space transcending truth, right? Like there, but, and also there's, that still doesn't mean that there aren't things that are helpful with that concept or informative to what our life is like or what it means. And so I do see a lot of value in um, the theories that underlie therapy and like, why do we kind of go through this practice of talking to someone? Um, even if they are not an end-all, be-all answer to life's problems. Um, and even from a biblical level, I, I think about um, this idea that, like, the sins of fathers are visited on future generations yeah. and yep. um, that there is a systemic peace to our existence where, and I think this is especially hard for us to understand in the United States because we are so individualistic, right? Yep. My life, my decisions, I'm in control of it all. And yet like, that's not the reality either. Like there's some yep. mix of this. To, and and I do think the Bible speaks to um, cultures and systems sinning and how that impacts the people who are existing in those systems or cultures yep. and um, and that that requires then repentance and change. So it's not that that absolves the people living in it from any responsibility. It's this, again, a both and. And so I, I don't see when I've, when I'm working with people, there's very few people I, who take context as a way to like totally excuse themselves of any responsibility. Like, mm. oh, my dad was an alcoholic. So obviously like I'm doomed to a life of alcoholism and that's just all that I'm going to do with my life. Like I don't see many people doing that, but I do think for a lot of people, it's helpful to say you're having problems in your marriage, but your parents were, you know, divorced and remarried multiple times. Your friends have all like cheated on each other multiple times. Like, where were you supposed to learn what a healthy relationship was like? Where were, where right. were you, like, where was this supposed to come from? If there's no right. model of that, like, this is all that you know. Or um, I work with trauma a lot of the times and um, people will come in and say, like, I, I just can't trust anyone. And I have this sense of kind of like paranoia about the world or I can't, um, open up to people. I can't open up to my friends. It just feels too dangerous. And in those instances, I feel like, well, you've been taken advantage of by everyone, everyone who should have been trustworthy in your life, like, you know, parents and significant others. And um, it's understandable that we would be influenced by our past and that those things would stay with us. Um, I don't think that it means that it removes our personal agency or our own responsibility with what we do going forward um but validating like it kind of makes sense that we would be at this point yeah. is i think a different thing than saying you have no personal responsibility to think about what are you going to do with this moving forward um and even some of the research on again i'm going to bring up trauma probably multiple times today because that's my um, yeah. niche area, but um, they've done research on how um, survivors of like the concentration camps um, during World War II have their children who did, were not in those situations have neurological markers of trauma active in their brains 
and they were not even the ones that went through it, but they approach the world with brains that are like those who have gone through trauma. Um, That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, because their parents did. Um, and so we have I, all that kind of like neurological baggage that stays with us, um, even if we don't personally go through that experience. And so I do, I do think it's a bit unfair to just deny the impact of that. Um, yeah. And again, not that we don't have personal responsibility, but... Um, it is some in between, some complex in between, I think. Yeah. So how does, could you help uh, maybe briefly explain like how does that validating uh, someone's story and even their pain, yeah. how does that open the door to healing? Like why is this, why is it beneficial for us? You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when, let's say I have a terrible day and I go and go home and I sit in my bedroom by myself and I say all these bad things happened today and xyz and my coffee spilled on my way to work and then this person reamed me out and whatever and I got in a fight with my spouse and um and I have a cry about it I might feel better momentarily um but on a again neurological level there is a completely different process that happens when I find, when I say those same words to someone's, and I see a face that is attuned mm. to me that shows that it's listening. When my brain is registering, there's a being in front of you who is showing care, who is um, supporting you, um, who is showing signs of being trustworthy. There's something about that that causes our brains to like rework that memory and consolidate it differently where it d isn't as painful anymore. Mm. Um, and that is just stunning to me. Like that, I, I think it's so beautiful that God made us that way. We're having yeah. conversations with people. Um, you know, I, I get clients all the time who say, why, why should I go and talk to a stranger about the worst days of my life? Like, and pay someone for it. <laughs> I mean, this just <laughs> right. sounds ludicrous, right? Um, yeah. And yet, and this idea, like, it won't do anything. It doesn't change what happened. And on one level, it doesn't. It, we, we can't go back and change the reality of um, what life is. But we, you can literally change how it is um, biologically stored in your body and in your brain from talking to someone about it. Um, and that is... I think just a, such a neat um, example of what it means to transform yourself through relationship with other people. Um, you can see even just like little glimpses of this, how we, our brains pick up on others. If, if you've ever been like in a room of people and someone takes a drink of water and then all of a sudden everyone else is taking a drink of water at the same time, even if we're not consciously noting it, there's something in our, we have these mirror neurons in our brain that are constantly looking for what other people are doing and how they're responding to us and and shaping our own behavior around that um, and it is just again like magic to our brains when that is directed towards us and we we see trust and care and truth um, kind of mirrored back it just does something on a, a biological physical level to help us um, view things differently remember things differently 
Um, one therapist who I really like, she calls it undoing aloneness. Um, that mm. some of the sometimes the most painful parts of our lives happened alone, or we felt yeah. alone. Um, even if people were around, that someone, no one was there in a in a way that really made us feel seen or supported. And so to do therapy is to undo aloneness, that you don't have to be alone in that memory. I can share it with you now and help it transform to something else. That's good. And some of the things I hear you saying are thoroughly in line with uh, our Christian faith um, to care, to yeah. listen, yeah. to sort of empathize with, or Paul says, bear with one another. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, and I think those can be very beautiful things and God uses those. Um, this is, this is off, off script of my questions, but <laughs> you, you mentioned, you just acknowledged that it's a, a fairly, uh, agnostic or atheistic field. Um, yeah. and you've done a lot of schooling. You've, uh, learned a lot. And why, why have you held on to your faith? Like what, why has your learning and your exploration of this and your sort of swimming in this field not led to uh, uh, deconstruction or abandoning uh, faith? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think one of the first things that comes to mind when I hear that is when I was working on my dissertation and my dissertation was on um, intimate partner violence, like severe abuse between spouses um, and specifically how that occurs in Christian circles and how like forgiveness, submission, how these values can be distorted in a way that actually supports abuse. Um, and I remember telling someone, some random person in Panera, I was working on it, about it. And she said, well, I'll, I'll pray that you like say a Christian through this. <laughs> and I was just go, so taken aback by it because it was um, in studying that became so clear to me how these, these uh, representations of abuse and like had maligned something that was good from the Bible and like taken it for someone's own advantage or own purpose. Um, and that, it, that just didn't even seem like a threat to, to faith to me. It was, mm. this is not the, the Jesus I believe in or the, the Bible that I believe in. This is something that's distorted and an evil twisting of that for someone's own purposes. And um, I think being in, the field of psychology as a whole, I, I will say I've done, you know, both my undergrad and graduate education in Christian institutions. And so that has, I'm sure, been a huge um, blessing in that way, like being around in these small pockets of mm -hmm. people who are doing this from a Christian perspective and like intentionally learning about that and how, it, how I can um, integrate my faith with, with my work. But um one of the things they really emphasize is that all truth is God's truth. And that was mm. something I heard back in our early days of undergrad together. Yep. But, um, and I, I think that is a powerful thing. I don't have to be afraid of learning about the world. Mm. I don't have to be worried that God's not going to measure up or um, <laughs> that he's going to fall mm. short in some way. And um, so I think trying to take the fear out of it um, makes a big difference. And, Honestly, the more I learn about psychology, the more I see 
just how God's made us. Like it, it just makes me appreciate the um, the theological aspect of it more. Um, even about um, I've been leading some workshops lately on on racism and the church, and we've talked about how you know we have we know we're sinful people, but even from a psychological perspective, we have these um, these concepts like the fundamental attribution bias, which means I will always view myself as um, essentially I'll give myself the benefit of the doubt, and I will. Yeah pin um, other people's in um, wrong actions on there's something internal and bad about them. But when I do something wrong, it's because I had a bad day or someone cut, mm-hmm. you know, like something else yep. external caused it. And I'm, I'm okay. I'm not a bad person. Um, but we have these ways of just um, <laughs> biasing people and, um, you know, being kind of lying to ourselves about um, our re- our reality in the world and our own sinfulness that um, when I read those things and learn about social psychology, I'm like, oh my gosh, the Bible is so true. You know, it, yeah. it, you know, this is reflecting that, that we are just so, um, we can delude ourselves into, into thinking things that are not true. And um, so, yeah, I think more often than not, the psychology to me strengthens just God's um, beautiful design for humanity. I will say, you know, there's certainly been like moments of struggle in faith because of, um, I would say more from doing clinical work than from my actual classes, but some of the things that people go through and like wrestling with the problem of pain in the world and like why some people have just such painful, awful, um, lives or, you know, and that is, I think probably more of what's um, maybe led to like disillusionment at times with, uh, or just questioning God, like, why is this the way it is? And, um, you know, but I think that's probably, I don't view that as a bad thing. Um, I don't think it's caused me to fall away from faith. I think my faith has been strengthened from having to confront those things. So in some ways, I think it does bring me more in touch with some of the like, painful realities of if I'm really going to believe in God, I have to reconcile it with (laughs) these things about life that I don't like having to wrestle with that. Um, But I think my faith is stronger for the wrestling, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's good. Um, I'm going to come back to that. I just want to add sort of a pastoral perspective on, on things. The, um, I think there's a tendency maybe in the secular field to reduce our entire being down to, you know, material, physiological things. And so, um, see, we can trace how this affects the brain and what's happening in the brain. Therefore, we're just, um, you know, material or physiological. But I think if we are embodied souls uh, in, in our being and personhood, like it would make sense that it's all interconnected. Um, likewise, though, for Christians to simply believe sin is just this like sort of outward, beha- like moral behavior actions and, and that it doesn't somehow sort of infect our being and, and our neurology and mm-hmm. um, like we're embodied souls. So all of our whole selves has been impacted by our sin and sins committed against us. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah. The, the, the suffering piece, I, 
I haven't to the degree probably that you have, but I've been part of a ministry that deals with like sort of inner spiritual healing. And then just in my time as a ministry, I've, I've had some heavy conversations and heard of some messed up stuff that's happened mm-hmm. in people's lives. And it's, it's rocked me a little bit in how I, pr- how I process it. So I guess maybe I'm getting free advice here, but um, how, how do you sort of off, well, one, I found I to actually empathize with him, I have to enter enter into it to a degree. Yeah. Uh, but how do, how do you come back out of that, though? How do you sort of offload the weight of some of the stuff you encounter? Uh, how do yeah. you stay healthy and things? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. It's a, And it's a difficult one because... I do think that to to have that kind of transformational relationship, you can't sit on the outside. You can't sit on the outskirts and mm. remain closed off from people. And I, it is always so compelling to me to think about um, that God became Emmanuel, God with us, yeah. um, God not staying far removed, but God entering in and what that means then when we try to enter in with other people that we can't, we can't stay on the outskirts. We can't just stand at the top of the hole and look down and be like, well, it looks crappy down there. How'd you get there? Right. Like, um, and I, um, I love a lot of, um, Brené Brown's work, if you're familiar Mm -hmm. with her at all, but, um, and I don't, she, she is religious and not as open about it, I think, but um, she has a great little video on YouTube about empathy and how it means um, entering in and going, yep. not just staying on the outside and like not getting dirty, but like uh, I had a professor who would say it's going and sitting in the mud with people and you yeah. really cannot do the work without being willing to get muddy. And um, and at the same time, um, when you drag that mud back home and it get like that, yeah. there's just that becomes unhealthy too. So, um, there, gosh, there's no algorithm or formula here, but I think it is for me a lot of, um, coming to terms with the fact that I cannot be God in someone's life. I actually read an article that was not written by a religious person uh, when I was in grad school, but they were saying that, um, clinicians often desire the traits of God when they are meeting with people that they, they want to be omnipresent. Like I'm never going to go on vacation. I'm always going to answer every call. I'm going to meet every need. I want to be omnipotent. I want to have power over my client's life to just like make them do the thing that would make them better. Right. Um, I want to be omniscient and know everything about them. And like, that's a problem. And if I tell myself that that is the role that I can play in someone's life, I'm going to just mess myself up and them too. Um, And so that was a big check for me (laughs) of like, Oh crap. Okay. I can't, (laughs) you know, take on that level of responsibility for someone's life. Like, Oh, you can enter in and then also have to, again, validate that they are, they are responsible for their own decisions. They are responsible for their own life. I, you know, I will walk beside someone, but I cannot drag them and I cannot magically make their life better. Um, and really, if they do experience improvement in their life, it's not just me doing it. It's, you know, I, I yeah. really feel like it's God working through that interaction. So um, I think kind of 
not letting myself think too much of my own <laughs> work is really important. And also yeah. just having own, you know, kind of rhythms of self care, people to talk to. Um, I have a lot of limits about confidentiality with what I do, but I do try to have a, a couple people identified who I can at least talk about the impact on me. Like, yeah. you know, not giving details about other people's lives, but like this really hit me or it struck something yeah. that like I've struggled with and that was hard or, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Um, so I found in ministry that a lot of people's sin, what we'd call in the church is sin. A lot of their sin struggles have grown in the soil of an unhealed past wound. Yeah. Uh, so how can exploring the wound lead to healing? And does the fact that some vices are connected to a past wound, we've already kind of talked about this, but does that exonerate them? Um, if it's an addiction or a disease, is it something they can't help? Like what is, what is exploring the wound, the process of exploring the wound, but then also taking responsibility uh, for pursuing healing? Like, what is that? Obviously it probably doesn't play out like a script for you with clients. It's, mm -hmm. it's different, but like, what is that ideal outline or process? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I think some of this we've kind of touched on a little bit, but, and I don't want to be like repetitive, but I do think, you know, there's real ways where we have vulnerabilities from our pasts and from the things people have done, our parents, our, the people around us, the cultures we live in. Um, and then also that we still hold that free will about what we do moving forward. Um, I, I'm trying not to be too like heady here as I talk about this, but there's this one theory that we um, use in psychology called the diathesis stress model. And it essentially means that Everyone has a um, a cup for for different things in their life. This metaphorical cup. So, like, let's let's use addiction as an example, which is super common in different forms, right? We have socially acceptable addictions, and then ones that aren't acceptable. But right, um, don't talk about my coffee that way. Right, right. <laughs> you leave caffeine out of this, um, but um, addiction. Well, you could have a certain level of um, genetic vulnerability to addiction because of, again, things that you didn't do, but that people, your grandparents, your parents did. Um, and that pours a certain amount of water into the cup. Then you might have like personality factors, like maybe you're a more impulsive person. Um, maybe you don't really think before you act as much, or maybe you're very um, emotional. And when you get into that place, you just cope with whatever you can find kind of thing. Um, so all of those types of factors then pour some more water into the cup. Uh, and then you get to the overt choices that people make, like I'm going to go walk into a bar and order three shots kind of thing like yeah. that. And I think that's where we focus most of our attention. And, you know, that is what people like to kind of focus on as far as free will and choice. But um, if my cup is already three quarters of the way full from what I just inherited on a genetic level and what my own kind of predispositions and personality is, it requires very little poor decision making on my part to get that cup to overflow and I have an addiction problem. Um, whereas some people have, you know, maybe 
just a little line of water in the bottom of genetic vulnerability, or they have um, personalities that are more conscientious or more cautious about those kind of things. And um, they could make a lot of bad decisions and still not wind up where that cup is going to overflow. Yeah. And they have a, what we would then identify as a problem. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that all decisions are weighted equally when it comes to like when considering what we're bringing with us into that mm -hmm. um into that situation and some people are able to kind of have more like give when it comes to like they can they can mess up a few times or they can make some risky decisions or they can you know push the boundaries a little bit and they're not going to end up with that cup overflowing into a um clinical depression or, a, yeah. you know, addiction problem or whatever it might be. Um, so I think instead of trying to pin, was this your fault or was it the environment's fault? Like, to me, it's more about empathy of like, I can't, I can't go once that cup is overflowing. I'm not, I can't go back and sort out what fraction was from your choices and what fraction was from, you know, and really what difference does it make if I, if we were to go back and do that and be able to say, well, it was 40% your decision making. So like, you know, that means you need to take X amount of responsibility moving forward. It's just not how it works. Um, people that, maybe makes us feel better on some level if we could be that exact and it's just not the reality of it you know the what matters is what are you going to do moving forward about it what are you how are you going to address this cup of overflowing water are you going to like stash it in a closet and just try and pretend it's not there um or are you going to like tell some people about it get some help you know um so i think the answer lies in being a bit more forward facing and about what are we going to do going forward and how do you want to change your life versus let's try and suss out everyone's little piece of responsibility in this chaos before yeah. us. That's good. I think, you know, I think as you're describing that, some of it's kind of obvious. Uh, this may be a little crass an example, but like, just like um, sort of weight issues and body type and oh, how some people like, it's like they can eat anything and never gain it. So like it manifests what you're describing in that way that some people have uh, like not everyone's choices are, are necessarily created equal when it comes to what we eat. Like, um, yeah. so wouldn't it make sense if that's the case across, you know, kind of across the board that like people have different, as you said, metaphorical cups of what's already where the tipping point is. Yeah. There's a, oh, sorry, ahead. I just wanted to add, there's a, um, a recent one, a television show, there's a quote in it that says, um, this one character says, like, I had, I made good choices. And another character says, you had good choices to make. Like, mm. you, the choices before us are not always equal because, and again, it's not always a, a personal fault in that, but it's the reality of living yeah. in a fallen world. And yeah. And, and I've seen that in youth ministry when I was a youth pastor. I saw students who um, they made bad choices, but I also saw what was – I knew what was going on at, at home, and I knew yeah. what examples they had. Um, and I think as you were talking, what I think sometimes the view that, uh, well, psychology might make people feel like they don't need to take responsibility, I think what that sometimes is is maybe an uh, – 
sort of a validation of our judgmentalism. Like if we can say it's all their fault, mm-hmm. that actually exonerates us from the empathy and the work of compassion and uh, showing grace. But if we acknowledge what was poured into their cup, <laughs> um, yeah, that actually calls us to show grace and compassion. And that's harder. Yeah. Um, it's much more threatening than yeah. like, like, because then my life that doesn't have addiction or that doesn't have depression, like I can't take full responsibility for that. Like, it, you know, maybe I made some choices that helped contribute to that, but maybe I made some that would have put me at risk for it if my life had been different. And yeah, um, yeah it's a much more vulnerable place. Yeah. Totally agree. I would love to hear. And, yeah. yeah. And that, that, and that's actually pride if you think about it. Cause well, yeah. I'm, it makes me feel better that I don't have all these, this laundry list of problems in my life that so-and-so does. Um, and really all that effort is sometimes is just sort of a masked effort to, uh, to hide our pharisaical attitude sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I think what I hear you saying too, is that doesn't mean that people don't still have to take responsibility. It's a both and mm-hmm. not an either or. Mm-hmm. I want to hear this sermon, Anthony, when you preach it. So, you know, keep me posted. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what's, uh, what are some things, uh, maybe one thing or a couple things, probably a couple things that you mm-hmm. sort of wish other Christians knew or understood about mental health? Like if there are some things that you feel like if the larger church sort of understood, it would be it would be uh, just healthier, maybe just a healthier yeah. perspective. I think something I hear so much that really breaks my heart is this um, stoicism almost about emotions and how emotions are from the devil and um, our emotions will just like misguide you and like don't pay attention to your emotions. And like um, if you go through painful things like, well, we're just waiting for heaven and so, you know, it'll, Jesus will take care of it. And uh, this kind of denial of emotional experiences, I think is really sad and um, and unhealthy. Um, One of the um, pastors that I respect, she said, you know, emotions are excellent indicators and they are terrible dictators. Mm, And I, I think that's just a great way of viewing emotions that um, if we deny these indicators of our, um, what our reality is in the world, we're, um, we're going to spend a lot of energy trying to deny them because they're constantly happening. (laughs) And also we're denying something about how God made us. I don't think emotions just sprouted after the fall and when Adam and Eve were kicked yeah. out of the garden, right? Um, I, emotions are um, constant data on our environment. Like when we cry about something, it's because something has deeply moved us. We may not know why, but you don't just cry for no reason. Um, you don't just laugh for no reason. There's a there's a reason we have these reactions and it tells us something about what just happened in the environment. And yeah. so when we try and like remove or distance ourselves from that, um, you're you're cutting off a sense of you're cutting off this tool that I I really believe God gave us as a way of 
um, connecting with one another. Um, of course, I love Inside Out, which is the classic therapist mm-hmm. movie. But, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, like sadness, ha- it has this role of drawing people together. And, you know, when when we see someone who's sad, if we if we comfort them like that, that causes closeness and intimacy with another person. And, um, you know, same with like joy and laughter. And but all of these emotional experiences have, I think, a um of value to them and can enrich our our lives as Christians. Certainly not that, oh, because I feel something like I should always act on it. But I don't think it's, um, I think it would actually be helpful to take that indicator into consideration sometimes. Um, And even, you know, gut responses, sometimes we feel like, oh, I have this gut reaction that I should do XYZ or not do XYZ. And sometimes I think that's the Holy Spirit working on Mm -hmm. a intuition feelings based level with us right to to get us to act in a certain way and um and that is something that psychology cannot explain like why we have gut reactions we don't it's not well understood at all but like we have these emotional intuitive kind of ways of going about the world sometimes and it makes me really sad when the church kind of just cuts that off as something that's unholy or not of god yeah i i agree the the psalms are highly emotive and oh gosh yeah some of my favorite scenes of jesus in the gospels are like uh, there's one in uh i don't remember which gospel but when he's in the garden praying before his crucifixion like uh it says he's like deeply distressed to the point of death like it, the the gospel author uses some very descriptive language of yeah. jesus's emotional experience um and uh, just the indicator thing like let's say this is not true, fully hypothetical. Let's say I feel, <laughs> I feel like cheating on my wife. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I shouldn't act on that feeling, but that feeling's indicating something's not healthy, like yeah, something's off, right? Absolutely. Um, so, and how much more danger are you at if you just ignore it and r- say, right. "Oh, whatever, right. that doesn't count for anything." Yeah. 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 Ex- exactly. It, it doesn't. It's not good for the marriage. Even if I don't act on that feeling, but if I let it sit dormant. It's still not pursuing health in my marriage, but yeah, great. Yeah. Um, last two questions. Uh, mm-hmm. What What are some quick tips you would share with people, just to sort of in general for staying emotionally and spiritually healthy? Are there some some just regular rhythms or disciplines that we can do as people that contribute to our uh, emotional and spiritual health? Mm. Um. I, I mean, as you probably already picked up on, I'm very relational as a therapist. I believe that that is um, very powerful. And so one of the things I see so often is um, people not having deep relationships with other people. Like if I ask, you know, who is it that really knows what you're struggling in or mm. not just like where you went for dinner last night, but what, <laughs> what are you, um, what's difficult for you right now? How are you trying to grow? And people really don't, a lot of people really struggle to open up that much to people or take the risk to engage in that much disclosure with someone. Um, and I do think that's where a lot of Brene Brown's work on vulnerability is really helpful. Like, again, it's not overtly theological, but it's implicitly very theological, I think. So, um, 
And so I think just making sure that there's people in your life who you can like engage and you choose to engage in that kind of disclosure with, um, and that it's not comfortable and easy. It requires work and, um, discomfort to, to do that kind of relating to other people. But I think that's one of the most emotionally healthy things we can do and to have someone who can be honest and not just be a yes man friend who Mm. always says you're doing the right thing and you're okay you know you're great um and then i think I think probably the second thing I would say is um, pursuing flexibility um, and that it's often when we pursue health, whether that's mental health or physical health, we can be very rigid with it. We can say, Mm. I'm going to, you know, all right, I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to exercise for 30 minutes at the exact same time every day. And I'm going to read my Bible as soon as I get up and I'm going to, um, go to therapy or I'm going to complete this meditation app or whatever. And um, I'm sorry, meditation is controversial for some people scratch that, but um, anyway, and then when it doesn't happen, we just feel like, Oh, I'm a terrible person. Now I've fallen off the bandwagon and I I can't, you know, get back on. Um, And so I think having flexibility to acknowledge like life is unpredictable it is full of unknowns Uh, we're living in the midst of a pandemic the things that you Mm. you you know used to work may not work anymore um and that's okay that there are maybe things that you couldn't have done before that now are really helpful and um trying to see those adaptations as um something that's just going to have to happen instead of something that throws you know, off your game, I think is really helpful. Um, and just yeah. to anticipate that life is going to need some constant adjustment and, and work really to make it function. Yeah, that's good. I, I had to learn that after, uh, you know, so I had these aspirations to be really disciplined with like working out and my devotional time and, um, my work schedule and all this stuff. And then when we had two kids, um, <laughs> Like getting up early and working out and doing devotions is um, like I would have to get up really early to do some of those things before the kids are up. And yeah, um, there's I remember very specifically one morning I got up before everyone was awake and I sat down uh, to to read some scripture, and then my son woke up. And I remember experiencing an emotion of anger and frustration. I'm like, God. I'm trying <laughs> to spend time yeah. with you. Yeah. And I felt a check in in my spirit of like, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have to view my son as an obstacle or an interruption. I can view this as sacred to spending time with him this morning and all that stuff. So um yeah. the flexibility yeah. piece I had to I had to learn. I, I still struggle with it, but that's that's super good advice. Mm-hmm. Um last question. Uh I think, unless you say something that just, you know, triggers a, another question, but um, we could go off on the meditation. Yeah. Piece, but that, yeah, I didn't mean to be controversial right in the no, last few minutes there. No, it's I'm uh, scripture. You talks about meditation actually, yes, but um, you know, 
it'd be crazy that scripture would talk about something that social science and psychology says is actually healthy for us, right? Uh, oh, right? <laughs> profound. Um, now, there's obviously, uh, I should say this, there are unhealthy versions, uh, unhealthy maybe objects of focus in meditation, but it yeah. doesn't have to be. Anyways, we won't. Sorry. <laughs> Rabbit trail. For another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to do another another episode. Um, are there any books or resources uh, or, or just anything you're just really excited about right now that you would want to share with others and share with your share with any listeners? Um, two that I thought was um, for for me personally, I have um, just read um, a book called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan, um, and it was so powerful to me. Um, kind of going back to what we talked about at the beginning of like balance and like how do you um, not just work and parent, but also rest, <laughs> um, which I'm really terrible at. And um, you know, rest for me brings up all of these worries of am I enough? Am I doing enough? Kind of thing. And so um, that was really a powerful book for me. I read it over the summer to consider um, what is God calling us to when he talks about Sabbath and what does that mean um, beyond just going to church and not working one day a week or so, you know, what is, yeah, some yeah. very trite um, simmered yeah. down version of that. Um, another book I've read recently that I've really enjoyed was um, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things by Sarah Bessie. Um, I will put out the disclaimer that I know not Sarah Bessie is a bit more controversial in the Christian world. Um, and I don't, I enjoy reading books by people. I don't necessarily agree with all of their theology or where mm -hmm. they're coming from. And um, I feel like it makes me think a bit more and, uh, you know, critically examine like where, why am I getting my understanding of God? And is that accurate? Yeah. And um, so I'm not, um, it's not a hundred percent endorsement of all, everything she thinks, but it was a very great book and um, very um, thought provoking. Um, she talks about her life with chronic pain and, um, times when God has miraculously healed her. And then also when her pain has returned and what do you do with that? And the reality that God can heal and also he doesn't sometimes. Um, so that has been helpful to me. And again, just approaching a lot of pain in people's lives and what to do with that. Yeah, that I, I might check that one out. Uh, actually, I might check both of them out. The first one was, uh, could you say the titles again? Uh, yeah, The Rest of God. Um, and the author is Mark Buchanan, B-U-C-H-A-N-A-N. And then Miracles and Other Reasonable Things by Sarah Bessie. Sounds awesome. I might have to check those out. Yeah. Um, well, uh, you almost triggered uh, some some sermon preaching on, on Sabbath, but um, <laughs> I'm a big... Uh, Actually, I will share. I, I think it, it is so important. And when I read a book by Walter Brueggemann that talked about how um, it's so fascinating that God instituted Sabbath when the Israelites were in the wilderness, yeah. um, because the instinct would be to do more because resources are scarce. Mm -hmm. And that's that's so often our go-to is when things, when resources seem scarce, we try to amp up our productivity. Um, but it's actually sometimes in those places that like God calls us uh, to rest. Um, and he talks about how their identity in Egypt as slaves revolved around productivity. Um, yeah. and their identity as the people of God was not about what they did, but who they yes. were. Um, yes. And, yeah, the, yeah. He talks about that a little bit of you've, you've come from slavery. Don't ever go back to being a slave 
to anything yeah. except, you know, except to serve me and, you know, enslaving oneself to work and what that means. And yeah. Yeah. That's, that could be another episode too. So, yeah. um, <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show and talking about mental health and uh, just sharing your story. Um, it was really fun for me and uh, I hope it will be really encouraging for any listeners. Um, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.